The worst part about radio and, and podcasts is no one can tell how beautiful I look right now. <laughs> that is true. That is very true. What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off the Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Frank Shaparo is a crypto journalist currently at The Block, a global community for crypto enthusiasts. He previously covered the intersection of crypto and Wall Street at Business Insider. In this conversation, we cover the current state of crypto media, what it takes to develop sources, how you deal with sources who lie to you, what happened when the CFO of Goldman Sachs called Frank's article fake news, and who the most important people and companies in crypto are. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Frankie Scoops is one of my favorites to interact with on Twitter, and this episode didn't disappoint. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Before we get started, I wanted to tell you about our sponsor, Block Estate, a security token project in the $200 trillion industry of real estate. They've partnered with Polymath and Coinlist Comply API to create one of the first tokenized real estate funds, and they have a unique buyback and burn model. To learn more, visit blockestate.com. All right, guys, here we go. We've got Frankie Scoops in the house today, so let's uh, let's just get this thing popping right off the start. Uh, thank you for coming so much. Yeah, no worries. Pleasure to be here. We, we have uh, gone back and forth on Twitter way too much. First time meeting in person. You've got more energy in real life than on Twitter, so I'm excited about this. Uh, big scoop energy. That's what they call me. <laughs> All right, so let's go through your background. Most people don't know that uh, how young you are and kind of how you got into uh, the media side of crypto. Yeah, I am pretty young, which is surprising because of all of my mannerisms that would otherwise otherwise suggest that I'm like 67 years old. Um, but it all started um, in college um, at WFUV. I got into radio, got into telling stories, got into the news. Um, first in politics, so going down to City Hall, writing up stories on really pedantic City Hall type things that really started to bore me after a while and I found a respite in writing about business news and there's less sort of vitriol in business news in a sense and it's funny that I ended up finding my way to crypto because there's tons of vitriol in crypto but the thing that I liked about business was it was a lot less bullcrap in a sense a lot less fighting back and forth a lot more building things and figuring out how we can build things that that people want to buy and so I ended up finding myself at NASDAQ as a marketing corporate communications intern, uh, really learned about capital markets for the first time, market formation, market structure, uh, initial public offerings, the stock market, all those things that I really hadn't been exposed to um, in my studies because I was studying uh, theology and sort of international political economy. Um, And I fell in love with the best part of my job when I was marketing at NASDAQ wasn't necessarily the job itself, but waking up in the morning, reading the Wall Street Journal, listening to Bloomberg Radio. And after that was done, I decided this is what I want to do. I want to tell stories that will, you know, make an impact on Wall Street and in the business world. And 
had a great opportunity to intern at BI, which started out. Basically, they threw me, uh, you know, they threw me into the wolf's den, covering whatever I wanted, talking to entrepreneurs. Um, I think because of my sort of demeanor as a 60-year-old trapped in a 23-year-old body or a 23-year-old trapped in a 60-year-old body, uh, thank God this is podcast and not television because <laughs> I have the face for the, for the former. Um, and I really was able to build a name for myself and quickly after a couple months, and especially after they brought me on full time, I mean, I was talking to people like the president of the New York Stock Exchange and the president, rather the founder of IEX and massively important folks on Wall Street. And it wasn't until I came on full time that they sort of said, all right, we need someone to write about this Bitcoin thing. And I said, Bitcoin, crypto, I mean, I want to be taken seriously as a financial journalist. I don't want to write about magic internet money all day. Yep. And their response basically was, well, you're going to be writing about magic internet money all day because um, the thing's exploding. This was right around May 2017, right after I'd graduated from Fordham. And they needed uh, someone to really uh, pick up the coverage because the thing was exploding as far as impressions were concerned in, in terms of the editors asking questions. You know, I remember someone came to me um, at Business Insider at the time and said, what is Ethereum? We need someone to write about what Ethereum is because the, the Google trend traffic is, is off the charts. And it was at the, off the charts, if you remember. You know, it's down now along with the price. Um, and so really just dove into the thing. Um, and, and the rest is sort of history. But it was really accidental, in a sense, being at the right place at the right time. And it was over the course of the next I'd say six months as the thing exploded was finding a niche at the intersection of, of this crazy crypto world and wall street. What are the people on wall street doing? And at the time they really underplayed it. So we're talking September, October, November, right around the time when Jamie Dimon called this thing a fad, right? Mm -hmm. I was thinking, all right, but what are they doing with it? And I thought the place that made the most sense to go to were the exchanges, because when we think about blockchain technology and where it can have the biggest impact, obviously on capital formation. So the IPO process could be disrupted by something like an ICO or an I, I, uh, security token offering, an STO. And obviously trading can be impacting. Uh, you have things like decentralized exchanges that supplement matching, uh, bringing, together, bringing together buyers and sellers. And so I wanted to see if they were positioning themselves, places like NYSE, NASDAQ, uh, CBOE, CME, how they were positioning themselves to take advantage and monetize this, this revolution in a sense. And at the time, I mean, no one really, they didn't seem like they had an idea, right? We're looking at it. We're thinking about it. We look at all technologies. But really, I mean, now we know a year later, Right. With they were back, all in. They, they were, were all, all in. in and they were all in for a while. Right. And so at the time when I when I was thinking about the impact that futures could have Bitcoin futures on the market, I went to all the analysts who cover the exchanges. So, you know, the the investment banker, the investment bankers who are writing up stock report analysts for their you know asset management clients to see how they can, uh, you know, the ones that set the price targets. Right. For yep. your listeners who might not understand what what investment bankers, some of them do. And I went to them and said, listen, 
What do you think the revenue opportunity is here? Bank of America had put out a report at the time, this was around November, October, um, that said that one, Bitcoin futures could help dampen volatility, which kind of didn't really happen if you think about it. But also there was a 10% revenue something for exchanges. So I went to uh, other folks covering the stock and they had not only did they really not understand what Bitcoin was, but they hung up the phone on me. They said, this is ridiculous. The exchanges aren't going to do anything in this space. I don't see what the opportunity is here. How off they were. Here we are now with back uh, with backed with with Nasdaq potentially looking to uh, do something with cryptocurrency exchanges. Uh, they're supplying uh, market surveillance technology to, I think, at this point, five cryptocurrency firms. Um, and so it really is a horse of a different color. And, and to really bring the point home of how much it's changed since I first started covering it, I remember asking a year ago a very high up executive at one of the exchanges, um, how big of an opportunity is this? And, and basically he echoed the same thing that uh, Jamie Dimon said, it's a fad, it's dangerous, here we are now here we know that they're they're all in they're all in yeah yeah so okay so so let's talk about um you know the state of the media in crypto right so i I kind of bucket it in a couple of different categories so you've got kind of legacy media which is cnbc bloomberg um you know mainstream media etc then you've got uh what i would consider crypto specific uh media which is the you know coin desks the um you know ccns coin telegraph etc and then you have this like citizen journal uh, journalists, right? Which are like all the people on Twitter, Reddit, Medium, et cetera, that are basically reporting the ground truth. How do you see those three interacting? And like, what is the state of each one of them? Well, I think it's interesting because as far as legacy media is concerned, I think there are so many topics that journalists have to cover that it really just does become about the price and how traditional um, institutions are viewing this space, right? And it's all sort of in that lens which underserves a lot of the folks who have been in it for a really long time uh, since, you know, 2008, since the beginning, or maybe since 2012. And so that in and of itself, you know, up until I'd say a year ago, uh, where you have some really fine journalists at places like Bloomberg and Business Insider and, and, and the New York Times, up until a year ago, most of the stories either had to do with price or the culture of these cyberpunks, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, that's changed. And I think we've seen a lot of leg- leg- legacy media really dive into this and, and pick apart issues ranging from technology, trading, um, and others. Um, but that gap from the beginning, where a lot of this was sort of viewed as a fly-by-night sort of thing, allowed for a lot of these medium-type folks to come up, a lot of vloggers, a lot of podcasters, a lot of writers um, who are also trading this stuff and, and investing in this stuff um, to fill a gap and really get granular on the technology side. Um, and I think now you have, all, all, you have those types of folks along with traditional media, but at the same time, and this is a recent phenomenon too, a Cambrian explosion, if you will, of crypto media publications yep. that, to be honest and to be frank, no pun intended. The pun was very much intended. There are a lot of these crypto publications that don't know how journalism works. They don't know how sourcing works. And there's a lot that I think, uh, you know, I'm very skeptical of who these crypto first publications yep. outside of Coindesk. I mean, they have great folks working on great stories. But outside of that, 
I'm very skeptical of where they're getting their information of, uh, from and, and the due diligence they're doing um, to really make sure the information they have is precise and well sourced, you know. So, it, so let, let's talk about this though, right? Uh, a bunch of us on Twitter have lovingly started calling you Frankie Scoops, right? Yes. Because you continue to publish scoop after scoop after scoop. As my ego uh, grows and grows and grows. <laughs> uh, but but let's walk through like the anatomy of a scoop, right? How do you? Should we look, go through one that you helped me with? Or <laughs> that's probably not for the best. <laughs> Uh, so let, let's talk sure. through like how you find sources, right? How do you actually um, develop that source, learn to trust them, get information from them, and eventually publish something? Well, that was the best thing, right, about the intersection that I was at. No one in, well, I don't want to say no one because that's a blanket statement, but very few journalists, I think, were actually looking at, well, let's talk to the market structure crypto expert at this Wall Street firm, as opposed to, you know, the crypto first firms like, you know, uh, block blockchain um, or, you know, a circle or yep. a or a Coinbase. I thought, let me go to the Chicago based market making firms, uh, New York Stock Exchange. Let me find their Bitcoin guys, their crypto guys, because no one's probably really talking to them because the attention is all on the crypto side, uh, the crypto first side of things. And so that's really your approach was, let me go to the established legacy players, the Wall Street type institutions. And if I start there, it's kind of a trickle down from, you know, the, the, the well-established, well-known players all the way down to the individual startups. And that's exactly what happened. So I started with like, you know, let's say uh, the head of digital assets at X Wall Street firm, and they were able to connect me and grow my base with actually the crypto first guy. So I started at Wall Street and then exactly as you sort of described, branch my way, branch myself out um, to those other folks. And Got so it. it's all about, I mean, the question is, you know, how do you build trust? How do you make sure folks know that you're not going to burn them and that you're not going to, I mean, it's very easy, right? You know, to talk to a journalist in one sense, um, but, but it's a scary thing. You know, you don't want to lose your job and you just need to make sure that, you know, I need to make sure that the person I'm talking to knows that they can trust me and that yep. I'm not going to, one, tell them, tell people things that they tell me off the record or on, on deep background. I'm not going to associate it with them. Um, and it's about relationships and friendships and getting to know them on a personal level, going out for a cup of coffee or a, or a drink of some sort and really forming a, a, um, a relationship of shared information. You know, I know things about um, about the industry, have some insights, yep. some might call them insights, um, that can help them at their job. And, and, and so is this like, let's say you call up head of digital at a bank or wherever, first call you're asking questions, of, you know, that you want answers to that you can then use as uh, information for a story? Or is it more of, hey, call them up, I want to get to know you, I think that we can build this long lasting relationship? Like, yeah, what, you don't want to just call them and be like, hey, listen, I know you're building this thing, you got to tell me everything you know about it. That's going to scare them, right? Yep. You know, you kind of want to grease the wheels, the old foot in the door phenomenon, you know, how are the wife and kids? Yep. I mean, I'm being tongue in cheek, but it's, it's serious. Uh, that's part of that's part of the process. And and so a lot of the time I hear something from someone like Anthony Pompliano might tell me that <laughs> such and such is building is being built at X company. And I think hmm, that's interesting. I can't just go write the story. Right. Because Anthony might not know what the hell he's talking about. 
You're gonna you're gonna make me lose all of my friends over yeah, fake right. news right now. You see, this is this is this is fake news. Anthony's Anthony's not that helpful. Don't worry. Um, but, uh, but, 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 but hold on. So so when you call these people though, because this is an important part, right? So you call them and you get information. Sure. How do you know that the information is true? And do you have to go get it from multiple people to confirm it, or how does that process? Well, so work? the first thing I think about when I go into any call, right, is why. Would they tell me this? And how do they potentially benefit from telling me this? Yep. So I'll give you an example. And this is, I think I can give this example. So when I broke that CBOE was really getting close to, or at least telling its market making clients that it was getting close to launching Ether Futures. Yep. I mean, I knew this was something that would move the price. And so the first market maker who told me, right, I'm thinking, huh. Well, why they want to tell me this? Maybe they have amassed a large position in Ethereum yep. and they would benefit from such a story. And so... I think a lot of people in the crypto world don't think that really good journalists think about these questions. They just want to get the story out. But this is something that's really, really important to me. And so, yes. Yeah, so just because such and such market maker told me that this was something that they had told him or her, uh, I didn't go off of just that one source. And uh, because of those questions that you have to think about. And so I went to another one. Got the same exact story. All the details need to line up because imprecision, even if it's a sentence, can radically change a story and radically can impact uh, someone's money. And, you know, Absolutely. no one gets a story right all the time. Uh, I reported it was a really gangbuster report on Fidelity mm -hmm. and their crypto efforts. And everyone knows that Abigail Johnson's really big into crypto. I had first reported they were hiring uh, from internal, and this is, this is, you know, when folks send me stuff from inside the company, it makes the story process so easier because it's just, you look at the documents, you read it and you write it up. And so it's like, you have, you've got paper evidence, Yeah, right? paper evidence. That makes it great. Cause you know, I don't have to, I can't point to my nameless source. I can just point to what <laughs> I have in my hand. And so the, the job ads basically said we're hiring for crypto custody, uh, and, and, uh, for a, for projects related to a digital asset exchange. Yep. So I followed up that report because obviously people, when you put something out like that, they want to talk to you or they want to give you more information to the story. And so I found out basically that um, they had a VC prop fund under a British subsidiary um, from which a number of folks or that was created by a number of folks at the firm who had left. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners who know who these folks yep. are at Castle Island Ventures. And so basically... From I think I talked to at least five or six people for this story. I mean, I really wanted to make sure I was getting it right because this isn't something that Fidelity wants to talk about. Yep. And companies typically don't want to talk about things. And companies typically only want to tell you what they want to talk about, which is the hardest part of the job. And so the, the mistake I made, right, was that I had reported that the fund had shut, which was the language that was used by all my sources. Now, Fidelity calls me the next day and basically says the fund is inactive. Now, it kind of sounds like the same thing, right? Yep. But it's that sort of precision that as a journalist, um, you know, you because don't always the, get it, but you want to get it every single time. Because the difference there is shut means is inactive in perpetuity, right? It's sure, over. Sure, And inactive over. could mean we have money still sitting here. We're not currently deploying it, but we may restart at some point in the exactly, future. Exactly, which yeah. is an important distinction. And, mm -hmm. you know... As a journalist, you know, you're not always going to get it 100% right, but those are the questions and those are the, 
those are the details, very specific details that you always want to go after. And so a long way of answering your question, but tying back to crypto first media, mm-hmm. a lot of the Coindesk wannabes of the world are not, I think, precisely tackling stories in that way where they're thinking about um, how they may be approaching it in a way that doesn't get um, at those tiny details that at the end of the Absolutely. day seem super tiny but make a huge difference on the impact. So let me ask this question. Um, does anyone ever lie to you? Like, like, like oh, tell, tell totally. me like the, the horror story, right? Of you're, you're, you've got a source, you've built some trust with them. They say, hey, Frank, you know, I've got this awesome piece of information and they lie. What Honestly, happens? that typically doesn't happen. So okay. it's not the folks that I've had established really great relationships with who will lie to me. Maybe they're they're just confused, you know, yeah, maybe yeah. typically and that's why you go to other people. It's something like, you know, they heard something from a company but it's they heard it a little bit off. Most of the time, it's the companies themselves that will literally lie to my face. Or, you know, try to spin me in one direction or the other. And so one time I was reporting, you know, Mike Dudas. I, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want a good story. I yeah, want a good story. This is a good story. So, um, well, he calls me. So Mike calls me the LinkedIn assassin because I'm always reporting on folks from the crypto world going to Wall Street. Or rather the other way around. People from Wall Street going to crypto. I think I reported on five at least from uh, New York Stock Exchange going to Coinbase, yep. right? Which, you know. The, the assault just continues. But um, so there was one hire from a, a traditional Wall Street firm, a really senior guy was going to a really well-known cryptocurrency uh, company. Okay. And so I had you know, recruiters are the best sources, by the way, because they know where people are going and they know for a fact um, that, that these things are happening. Uh, and so a really well-known uh uh, excuse me. So a recruiter told me about a very well-known guy making this move. And so I knew without a doubt, but went to the company and basically they said, this isn't true, mm-hmm. which puts me in a tough position because I have to think, all right, I only have this, this one guy who without a doubt knows, but they're basically telling me this hasn't happened. And on this one, I didn't go with my gut. I wrote the story, but just set it aside and said, I'll wait. And a couple, I think it was four or five weeks later. So wait, so so you wrote the story but didn't publish it, and you like put it in the drawer for later. Yeah, because I was only like ninety five percent certain, and if there's that five percent uncertainty that's sitting like in my in my gut, right? And so basically, I I went to the company. I said, this guy's coming on as X position, is what my source tells me, and they said. Well, well, I mean, we've talked to him. We've talked to a lot of people. You know, the classic of course. spin. Uh, yeah, but he's not he's not hired right now. I was like, are you going to hire him? Uh, well, no, we may not. We talked to a lot of people. And so that level of sort of doubt uh, was enough to make me uh, hold off for a little bit. Um, so they end up, someone at the company ended up calling me uh, four or five weeks later saying, it's Frank, that thing you were looking into four weeks ago, it was happening. And so, I mean... That's what confused me with when we put out that that story on Goldman's ambitions and everyone on crypto Twitter sort of coming after me and saying, oh, well, the CFO said okay, hold what on, Frank hold on, wrote. Hold on. Is, yeah, we, we got to back up and, sure, s- and sure, set sure. this. So you wrote a story sure. that said Goldman is 
uh, I believe your story said Goldman is going to shut down or is not going to launch the crypto trading desk that they had previously said they were going to do. So that was that was what a lot of folks. Is that the takeaway people had? That's the takeaway people okay. had. But the story itself was a little more detailed. And, and it was that custody has moved up the line. And the trading of... Uh, as a priority inside the bank. As a priority inside the bank. And the trading of physical Bitcoin has sort of moved down the list. But they're trading, obviously, uh, a ton of different uh, derivatives tied to crypto. Yep. And they're trading uh, futures, obviously. And so I think a lot of people interpreted the story as them completely scrapping all, traded, uh, all trading of all types of crypto-related assets. Which, obviously, we did not report because that's not true. Um, but I think a lot of people interpreted that as being the case. And so the CFO basically of Goldman said that 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 our report or he alluded to the report. Actually, he didn't really. He basically said that this sentiment is fake news. And a lot of people took that as meaning that my report or Business Insider's report was fake news. So, so you wrote this report. Everyone goes wild on Twitter, you know, yeah. mainstream media. Uh, people start trying to correlate the story with the, with price, the price movement, which is et ridiculous. And so CNBC, for instance, they reported that uh, Bitcoin tanks five hundred dollars a coin after uh, after Business Insider report about uh, Goldman's crypto strategy, when Bitcoin tanked an hour and a half before any of you know before of our course. report went out, and so. This just speaks to the the degree of misinformation. And I think when Mike was on, he, he spoke to a lot of these issues. And that's part of the reason why I'm joining the block is to create and help create a center, a hub for people to go to where they can get out of this like ridiculous um, misinformation chaos. Absolutely. Uh, to actually find some sound, reasoned uh news and information but but what is it like when you write a story and somehow it gets convoluted into this thing and then the cfo of goldman has to respond and he says it's fake news like, yeah. like what, what do you do do people start calling you saying like congratulations <laughs> hey you screwed up like like what, what is that response from people and what do you do yeah i mean what did i do i mean i tweeted about it and i said what well, this is exactly um, I, I was disappointed in the response because it, it, it he obviously didn't read the original story or he didn't frame his comments in a way that said, hey, it's not just this one report. It's the sentiment out of it. So he wasn't necessarily precise. But, you know, I made the case clear. Listen, you know, this is what our report said. And actually, Marty said after the fake news comment, he said, oh, you know, maybe uh, trading of actual digital assets has moved down the list and custody's become more important. Our strategy might have changed, which is exactly what the story said. Got it. Um, and so everything in this world, as you know, uh, emotions fly high and they and they come down in like a week or not even a week, a couple days. Before we move on, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Block Estate a new security token project in the $200 trillion real estate market. They've partnered with Polymath and Coinless Comply API to create one of the world's first tokenized real estate funds. Tokenization is the process of creating a digital token that represents ownership in a real-world asset. You've heard me say it before, but a clear use case for this is real estate. Block Estate aims to bring increased liquidity to this massive market. 
We're really, really thankful for, to the Block Estate team for their support. So we'd appreciate it if you checked out their website at blockestate.com to learn more. If you're intrigued by what they're doing, feel free to reach out to them or give them a tweet on Twitter. Thanks so much. Crypto is the greatest human psychological experiment I oh, think that truly. we'll probably see in our lifetime because not only is it all happening in relatively real time, there's prices attached to it, and it's very, very well documented in terms of everything that's being created online. And that's what makes it so fun to cover. And, and part of the reason why I, I love writing about the space originally, what, what really attracted me to it wasn't necessarily this any sort of political underpinning. You know, there's a lot of libertarians in this space. It wasn't a technology underpinning. There's a lot of really smart computer scientists in this space who love the idea of, of putting a monetary system in place that's coded, yep. impenetrable, et cetera. I mean, it's insanely groundbreaking computer science. Um, that didn't attract me either. It was really the passion and energy and liveliness um, and getting to tell stories for those types of people that are unbridledly insane. It's, it's epic. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's it truly epic, is, right? yeah. So, all right, so let's go back to uh, somebody tells you some sort of information for a story, right? They're a source and they provide you this information and it ends up being wrong, whether it was malicious or not. What do you do after that story is either published or, or you get you know kind of confirmation that it was incorrect? Do you go back and say to them, hey, you told me something that was wrong. Do you just drop it? Do you burn them? Like, like what is the, 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 the response to that? I don't know if I've ever have written a story that's been, that's been dramatically incorrect to the point of having to go back to someone and, 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 and take say, them like, down. Like yeah, what's no, going on? yeah, no, it's typically before the, the story will go live where, um, someone might tell me something that's, um, inaccurate. But again, you know, I've never, I've never had a source really tell me something that was inaccurate. I have people sort of dance around the truth, <laughs> you know, but that's just part of the job. That's part of the excitement, you know, and makes my job fun. You know, Absolutely. it starts with someone telling me something and having to find, connect the different dots together. And it's typically in that process of connecting the dots that you find people being inaccurate or, or um, untruthful and, all of that typically shakes out before any story is, is up. For sure. Um, yeah. So, so let's talk about a couple of things that are happening in crypto, because I think you have a really interesting perspective in that you get to talk to all kinds of random people, right? Everything from traders to uh, people at legacy firms to crypto natives. Totally. Um, kind of the, the whole gamut. Um, let's talk about the ETF, right? Sure. So ETF's gotten a ton of attention, and it seems like price goes up, goes down, based around these applications, you know, denials, potential approvals. What's your take on, you know, does the ETF actually matter? And if so, what would the impact be uh, if and when it gets approved? I have come to the conclusion that I think the ETF matters for the space, but it doesn't matter for the price. I think it doesn't matter at all for the price. I thought it did. I thought it could have a big impact. But going back a little bit to the run-up we saw in December after Futures launched, I think a lot of that was driven by this idea that we'd have an ETF in a couple months. Yep. Literally, people thought that, all right, we've been moving at a breakneck, breakneck, breakneck pace, uh, and it's going to continue unabated. And you know, here we are months and months later with no ETF in sight, probably won't get one in 2018, maybe not even the first half, half of 2019. There's a lot of work to be done in getting that off the ground, which we can talk about. But 
it's not going to happen. Now, I don't think that's as important, though, because when you look at the crypto ecosystem as a whole and you think about how much work we have to do on the actual digital assets themselves, on scaling, on getting a, a DAP on Ethereum or an EOS that is actually used by people, not just mm-hmm. 9,000 active users a month, which I think is the, the DAP uh, usage, or, or maybe it's a day on Ethereum. We need something that's actually scalable, actually as use cases, not just for nerds like us, but for grandma and grandpa in Iowa that they can understand. I was at Token Fest this past weekend, and there was a really cool company on one of my panels, and, and they're sort of trying to position themselves as a decentralized rival to Google. And, you know, it's a bit tangential, but basically I asked them, all right, why would my grandma care? Why would my grandma want to stop using Google to use this thing so she can get tokens? Like, that doesn't make sense to normal people. And we need to, or those companies rather, need to make sense of their projects to regular people. And so that's the impediment we need to get over. A a use case for crypto that makes sense to the masses, not an ETF. And so I think if we got an ETF tomorrow, maybe the price would rally a bit. But I think that's all going to go down because you're going to think, all right, now regular investors have access to this market. But it's the same thing as if, you know, you have an amusement park. This is a really stupid analogy. People tell me I'm really bad at metaphors, but I think this is a good one. It's like having an amusement park with some cool rides that are like different than other amusement parks, but they're not really there yet. Right. And so you have the ticket guy and they're all just normal ticket boots. You have to go to the amusement park to get your ticket. And so an ETF equivalent for this amusement park is, all right, now you can buy your tickets online. All right. But if you can buy your tickets online and there's not that many cool rides that excite you, you're not going to go to the amusement park. Likewise, if you have an ETF, but there's nothing that you think is that great about crypto or you don't understand it, right? If there's still that educational barrier, you're still not going to invest in the ETF. Yeah, it's, it's just it's changing the mechanism or, or pathway to owning the asset. It's not actually changing the asset itself or making it more valuable. Exactly. And it's not making it more understandable to regular people. Yep. You know, there are a lot of people out there that are making really great, um, that are doing a really great job laying out how Bitcoin could be the, the digital gold or a, a rival financial structure and other cryptocurrencies and digital assets that can also uh, make major moves into chipping into existing businesses, whether it's data storage or search. Um, but that yet has yet that has yet to be sort of deployed and truly tested, I think. Until we see that, I don't think an ETF will, will make a difference. And it's also ironic, I think, that, that we're waiting so much for Wall Street to release complex derivative products and, and, and other things as opposed to waiting with bated breath for what, what, what's going on inside Ethereum and what's going on inside a lot of these projects. That's where I think we should focus our attention, um, ironically, although I love watching the developments come out of Wall Street. And this is something that I've sort of been tackling with the past couple of weeks. I think it's less important, but it is yep. really, it is important, it's but important, it's less yeah. important. Um, an ETF is important for the, inf- for the, for the ecosystem, but I think it's less important. Um, so, okay. So let's go from wall street versus like crypto adoption to, uh, the regulatory environment, right? So there's all these like lobbying groups, working groups that are popping up that are, uh, either led by wall street, 
you know, executives uh, or crypto native companies, individuals that are trying to bridge the gap of understanding education for regulators and lawmakers, right? Are these things good? Are they just doomed to fail? How do you see the, the working groups and the lobbying groups actually uh, having an impact with the regulations and the regulators themselves? So Mike Novogratz um, had something really interesting to say about regulators' impression of this space, and I think it's really smart and true. And it's that w this market for so long was so retail-driven up until the end of last year. Um, and while there were folks at Wall Street firms looking at it, um, a lot of it wasn't public, right? Uh, and so there was no, you know, back in the housing crisis, regulators could go to their guy at Morgan or Goldman and say, what's going on, on here with these mortgage-backed securities? And you didn't really have that with crypto because it was so retail-driven. And so now they're playing catch-up. They're trying to figure this space out. They're giving it a chance, though. They, they're not completely um, sending it off to other countries as far as regulatory arbitrage is concerned. Yep. They want to see development. But there's a lot of unanswered questions, especially around the ETF. How can we make sure that these markets aren't being manipulated? And when so much of the action is in is in Asian countries, so much of the volume and turnover is in Asia, and you don't have market data sharing agreements between exchanges, you don't have a FINRA equivalent, you don't have, um, you don't have a guarantee, right, that, that these markets are operating um, along... They're just in a standardized, safe way. Exactly. Right? So we don't know. What, we don't. Yeah, we don't know what best execution is. We don't know how. We don't have those market safeguards that we have in equities. But to be fair, right, equity markets had 250 years to develop. Mm -hmm. So it is kind of like comparing apples and, and as um, Lynn Martin at ICE uh, said to me in an interview once, comparing apples and neon fluorescent signs, <laughs> which is true. Um, and we'll get them to be apples and apples probably one day. Um, but but. There's a lot of questions that the regulators have thrown to the crypto world, and they're not being answered. So on market uh, manipulation, if we can get the exchanges to sort of cooperate and collaborate to create an SRO, which the Winklevoss's uh, Gemini's, Gemini Exchange has, has sort of tried to spearhead with their, um, um, their working group that they've created. But, you know, you have coin, Coinbase creating their own with Circle and uh, Genesis, Yep. right? And I'm just here thinking, why aren't we getting them all together? It, it's just too much of a, in, in, from my perspective, it seems like the Winklevoss uh, Gemini Exchange wanted to get something that, that could help, you know, because the regulators wanted an SRO type thing. And so here they are, they go, all right, we'll create this thing uh, to help get their ETF on the ground and Coinbase probably sees and goes, well, we're not going to join, you know, we're not going to follow Gemini's lead. We got to create our own thing. And it's just troubling to me because you, we should all just be working together, right? We should all be trying to, uh, get to that common goal and purpose, which is sound markets, creating the standards for those sound markets and, uh, educating market participants and non-market participants alike on why this is a valuable space that you should put one to 5% of your assets in. Absolutely. So as this happens, right, we need technologists, obviously, to build technology standards, etc. And one thing that I think you and I agree a lot on is like, there's a full on assault 
by technologists on Wall Street and financial markets, right? The, you know, the, the Wall Street legacy organizations, institutions for a long time have dominated that world and they do things in a yeah. very specific way. Technologists happen to think a little bit differently, build things a little differently and, and, and kind of um, have a, uh, a different set of ethos and uh, perspective. And we're seeing this clash, right? And it's really the technologists attacking the financial markets and the, and the Wall Street institutions. How do you see that from your perspective, right? As you talk to a lot of these Wall Street uh, institutions, like what's their take on this? What I think is really interesting, if you want to look at something that can prove or can support a bullish thesis on crypto, right now price obviously is out of the argument. Um, um, scaling doesn't look as great. And yep. there's a lot of issues. But if you want something that looks good, look at the talent assault. Look at how many folks from traditional Wall Street, I can list them off, have either dived into crypto themselves or have been taken um, from a Wall Street firm to the crypto world. You had a guy like Jamie Selway who left ITG to be head of uh, institutional development or sales, I'm not sure what the pre precise title is, to go over to blockchain, right? You have a person like Christine Sandler leaving New York Stock Exchange to go to Coinbase. Eric Schrow from, from New York Stock Exchange went to Coinbase. Hunter Murgart went from, I think he was a sales trader at Barclays. He'll probably listen to this and tell me if I'm wrong. Went to Coinbase. You had a guy like I first reported, 25-year um, veteran trader who last was at Credit Suisse going to Kraken for their OTC desk. Mm -hmm. I mean, the assault is unreal. And so you have to think, I mean... They're, sh they're probably making great salaries, right? But there is this, this sweep that proves, I think, that there is a vision mm -hmm. that they see and there is efficiencies that can be driven by this technology and potentially maybe even a revolution. Yeah. I mean, look, it, forget all the money for a, sec, uh, for a second, right? I really do think that a lot of these people are leaving because they're going to something that's more exciting, more powerful, and it's a global phenomenon, right? And so the whole idea of like the virus is spreading really has become this thing of where the idea of what Bitcoin, digital assets, decentralized finance, et cetera, has spread and captured the mental energy, right? And, and it's a thing where once people get exposed to it and they understand it, they can't stop thinking about it. They can't stop trying to figure out how to solve some of these problems do get inside of an institution uh, that's a legacy, you know, Wall Street um, place just isn't going to cut it for a lot of them. And so they've got to go find somewhere else. That's what they're doing. Totally. But at the same time, I mean, you see a company like ICE launch backed, And I'll tell you, folks inside Coinbase tell me that they think that's, you know, across the crypto exchanges. They're they're not chasing the competition in that respect, but they do see a serious competitor in backed, And and that's because, you know, the trading market structure element of this is so integral to building a sound market, whether it's, you know, crypto or otherwise. And so um, long story short, you see tons of institutional firms looking at how they could break in, whether it's Goldman on custody, Numera on custody, uh, ICE obviously on custody and potentially trading. Um, and that's the story across the street. Absolutely. No, it makes complete sense. Um, all right, let's do some rapid fire questions sure. here. And, and then um, I'll ask you uh, one non-crypto question that I've been thinking about a lot. And I'll ask, let you uh, ask me one question <laughs> to wrap it up. Um, what's the most controversial thing that you believe in crypto? So the thing that you believe that the most amount of people when they hear it will disagree with you? 
I guess probably the ETF thing. I don't think we should be worrying about that as much as we do. Maybe that's not controversial, but I'm sure uh, someone might say that that's... There's a good amount of people that disagree with you. Everybody, like, is obsessed with this ETF. You're I not. Think. I'm not obsessed with it. All right. It'd be cool when it happens. Gabriel would probably argue otherwise. <laughs> he, he's all in on it. Um, okay, so uh, what is the most important or interesting company in crypto that people might not be talking about? That people might not be talking about. Uh, I reported on a fundraise out of Chicago, a company called CCX. And this, this company is an institutional platform for, for spot and derivatives. And they have hedge funds knocking on the door. And so what's interesting about them, one, they raised $15 million in a bear market, which speaks to a whole other conversation about how you know, the public markets for crypto, whether it's ICOs or otherwise, really, really bad, but companies are still raising millions of dollars. Yep. Anyway, what's interesting about them is the majority of the firms, or no, sorry, not the majority, but a large percentage of the firms that are knocking on their door from the institutional side have never traded crypto before, Yep. which is really insane. And so clearly they've got something going on there, um, CFTC regulated platform, um, that I think is really interesting. And they have a, a, a suite of heavyweight ex-Wall Streeters, a guy named Sam Teagle, who I first reported left jump trading. Um, he, the, he was recently brought on, and um, they got a really cool guy um, running the show who's like 25, super smart. And so it's a company to pay attention to. All in. All right, man. We're, we're going to take your word for that one. Uh, you've got a magic wand, and you can wave it and change one regulation. What do you change? One regulation. That's, I think I, I mean, we're probably on the same boat as this. I think the whole thing around, um, the fact you have to have $250,000. Accreditation laws. Yeah, accreditation laws. I would, I would bring down a little bit. I wouldn't eliminate them, I don't think. But I think especially someone who's, who's younger and, and has some extra cash, there's no reason why a computer scientist at Harvard who may not have 250000 net worth shouldn't at least take five grand and invest it in a venture capital project he thinks is interesting. I think that's absurd. Yeah, I mean, look, it, and it's not so much eliminating accreditation laws, it's just switching what the criteria is. Yeah, so today we exactly. have wealth as a signal for intelligence, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Right? And I've gone on and on about this. I don't need to touch on it anymore. But if we can go from a wealth criteria to a knowledge criteria, I actually not only think that one, it is more inclusive of the general population, but two, it actually probably makes it less risky in a more sound market because yeah, everyone is more intelligent. There's tons of people with 250,000 net worth that were stupid. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I can name like five. <laughs> For sure. All right. So uh, this is the first time I'm asking somebody a non-crypto question, but something that I've been thinking a lot about, and I just, knowing you, you will have a great answer for this. So... Uh, Lots and lots of people are interested around aliens, right? And uh, let's let's go ahead and just uh, we'll say that yes, there is some sort of living uh, organisms outside of Earth. So there's aliens somewhere. Do aliens have pets? So are there alien animals or are there just alien humans? It reminds me of uh, that South Park episode where Earth is like a show where they put a bunch of different species <laughs> on one planet and like, uh, you know, we're all like going after each other, starting wars, yep. eating each other. Joke's um, on us. So maybe we're, maybe we're the pets. You think yeah, we're the pets? Maybe we're the pets. All right. I, I, uh, I, I love that answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, 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 the way that this came up was uh, we were talking about aliens one day and, and I said, you know, we always talk about aliens like as human equivalents. 
right? They're going to yeah. show up and we can talk to them, hang out with them. They might attack us, whatever. I said, well, what about all the animals? Right. And, and is what has that play? Do they have this? animals? Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. But uh, but maybe we are the, the, the pets or the animals um, or right. the show. Uh, yeah. Well, we're, we're definitely a show. I don't know who's watching, but we're definitely the show. Um, all right. So I uh, let every guest ask me one question. What uh, what question do you have for me? That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> what question do I have? What um, what company do you th- I'd like to know what company you think is the most exciting right now? Ooh, what company do I think is the most exciting? Uh, I'm going to break from Side the question. Aside from Morgan Creek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, m- take Morgan Creek out of it. Uh, I'm actually not going to go with a company. I'm going to say that it is, uh, it's Bitcoin, right? And, and the reason being, uh, I think that people uh, are bored by Bitcoin. And I was making the argument to a friend the other day, uh, Bitcoin as an investment opportunity, Bitcoin as an economic you know, development, Bitcoin as a kind of you know, a, a threat to uh, sovereign-backed uh, currencies, et cetera, it's too boring, right? It, it, it's kind of come and gone in terms of the excitement of Bitcoin. And so now we see everyone going into everything from all of the kind of derivative trading to you know, what Wall Street wants to do, to enterprise blockchains, utility tokens, ICO. There's all this other like, fun, sexy stuff going on. But if you go back to Bitcoin, I still think it's the most interesting, most important development in the space. And if it is successful, right? So it is a complete binary bet in the sense of like a true venture capital bet. If it works, it is going to be insanely valuable, even from here. If it doesn't work, it's going to zero, right? And so that binary aspect of it scares a lot of people, right? But if it does work, it is probably the greatest technological development of the last, I don't know, 500 plus years, right? And the the reason why I think that uh, it's so important is because it is so simple, right? There's almost beauty in the simplicity of Bitcoin and what it is, what it is trying to accomplish. All of the intellectual Olympics that happen on Twitter and these other mediums, they kind of just skip over it, right? Because it's like, oh yeah, Bitcoin's a thing. It was one of the first, you know, applications. And and so like, let's go talk about everything else that, Mm -hmm. you know, we're going to try to figure out. Well, if you go back to that and you really sit and think about out of every single thing in crypto, what has the potential highest impact in a whole different different ways you cut it, Bitcoin's still probably the most interesting, most important thing. We just don't spend as much time thinking about that because of all the other sexy, cool things to talk about. And that's why we're here. <laughs> Literally why we're here. Uh, man, listen, this is so much fun. I really appreciate you coming on and, uh, was a pleasure. and, and, uh, and doing it on short notice and stuff. So uh, we'll, we'll have to do it again. Definitely. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Thanks again to our sponsor, Block Estate. To check out their tokenized real estate fund, you can check out www.blockestate.com. Hey, everyone. Pop here. If you like this episode of Off the Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off the Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off the Chain.